may be seated. Welcome. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, I was reminded in our meeting this morning, in fact, I'm going to tell you just go ahead and, and find your way to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. And Isaiah is just past Psalms, right before Jeremiah. It's about a little bit past the middle of the Bible. But uh, I was reminded that this is our one-year anniversary of being in this building. And I can tell you that last year at this time, some of you can attest to this, we had just gone through an intense five weeks to be able to take over this building and to completely transform it, and it was one of God's miracles, and we can just step back and say it's an amazing thing. And so just, just thankful for all those that were a part of that and continued to work hard so that we could be here and, and make this a home, and so we're very thankful for that. Well, if you've ever traveled in the West or if you've ever traveled in the Amazon, which I've had the opportunity to do, and you see there's times where loggers will come in and clear-cut an area. And when they do, it could be devastating. Where all you have is you just see, and this is not a great picture, it's a little bit grainy, but you just, it's all stumps. It, it's one of those times where it just feels like it's, everything's been abandoned, it's lifeless. There's no future, there's no hope, it's devastation. But God has a way of making what is dead alive. Of raising beauty out of destruction. A and you can see terribly grainy pictures. I got to learn to fix this. I'm, that's not me. But you get the idea that out of destruction, you can get a little bit of life. This becomes a lot of life. That's a picture of Isaiah 11. It's a picture of what the good news of Jesus does for us. Making the dead alive. Raising beauty out of destruction. We've been in this Advent series called For Unto Us. And we've been looking at the prophecies from Isaiah of the birth of Christ. Now, there's about 40 prophecies in Isaiah. We've looked at this today. We'll look at the th uh, third one. And not only have we been looking at the prophecies of the incarnation or of the birth of Christ, but we've been looking at the fulfillment of those. And we focused on Isaiah, as I said, a book written 700 years before the birth of Christ. During the time when Israel and, and Judah in the south were in tremendous turmoil. It was a time of devastation. It was a time of destruction. It was a time of darkness. There was like a dark cloud over the land. But then in Isaiah 7, we see this glimmer of light, this picture of hope, the announcement of a coming Messiah. He would be conceived of a virgin. His name would be what? Emmanuel, God with us. We see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And last week we looked at chapter 9. That our hope is in a child. Luke 9 says, for unto us a child is born. For unto us, to us, a child is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be, what? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
we saw how this child, this coming Messiah would be your hope. He would be your light in the darkness, your joy in the gloom, your peace in the storm. And today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11 and how God brings new life out of destruction. He brings new life out of what seems dead. He brings hope for a future. My prayer has been through this series that, that this series, this understanding of the prophecies and the fulfillment of the Messiah, of Christ, would give you a much deeper love for the Lord that any doubt you had about His deity would absolutely vanish, that your faith and your trust and your love for the Lord would, would grow and you would understand what the incarnation means for you and it would compel you to worship in a way maybe you've never worshipped before. So let me give you a little background on Isaiah 11 as we've been doing each week. The nation is divided, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And now as we get to chapter 11, Assyria, the big bully on the block as we've been talking about, Assyria, the, 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 the Assyrian empire has actually, has, has actually overrun Israel in the north, taken many of the people into captivity. And, and we see in chapter 10 how, is, how, uh, is, um, excuse me, how Assyria comes almost to the doorstep of Jerusalem, Judah in the south. But then God stops them. And we see in chapter 10 how, how God says, Assyria, you are my axe, you are an axe in my hand. I am using you as judgment against a rebellious and idolatrous nation. God does that. Sometimes he'll use pagan nations to judge a continually rebellious land or continually rebellious people. But then Assyria, they, they have pride. The, 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 their pride continues to grow, and they believe that they are greater than the God of Israel. So finally God says, okay, Assyria, I'm going to take that axe that is in your hand that you've been using on my behalf, and I'm going to cut you at the base of your trees. And we see that. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the, the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. He's talking about Assyria. And the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic God. And you get this picture of these stumps everywhere. God has just taken the axe and cut them at the base. What are you saying here? The Assyrian Empire would fall, but another will rise. And we're going to see that. God's empire. A shoot coming out of a stump. The shoot of Jesse. And so Isaiah chapter 11 is a description of that shoot of the new birth and the kingdom he would rule. So what do we learn about this shoot of Jesse? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. First of all, we learn that he brings hope to the hopeless. He brings hope to the hopeless. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruits. So you've got this field of stumps, not only Assyria, but you've got stumps throughout Israel, and at this point, throughout Judah. 
The nation has been devastated. Uh, Israel has been carried off into captivity uh, by, by, Assyria in the, uh, uh, by Assyria. And then Judah, a number of years later, is carried off into captivity by Babylon. All you have is stumps. In fact, somebody called it a stump kingdom. No life, no movement, no branches waving in the wind, just death, destruction. It would be horrific and hopeless just to see what that nation should have been like. And then something new appears. A small green shoot becomes a branch, and that branch bears fruit. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse the father of David, a new shoot, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The shoot would be a child born 700 years in the future from a royal lineage, yet a failed dynasty. The shoot would be a child from the stump of Jesse, and his name would be what? Jesus. And he would save his people from their sins. This is the gospel. This is a reminder that God is the one that makes life out of what is death. He gives light where there's darkness. This Jesus would be born of a virgin, of the Holy Spirit, and his purpose would to me be to make all things new. He would bring dead, the dead to life. In fact, we see that in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me put it up on the screen for you. Paul says in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is the condition of every one of us before Christ. We are all born in sin. And because of our sin, we are dead. And what can a dead man do? Nothing. Verse 4, but God. That's what you see here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isaiah chapter 11, when you, talk, when you see this, this shoot from the, from the stump of Jesse, it's a picture of being dead and new life being raised up. Isaiah was reminding the people that the messianic king was their only hope. And they should long for his rule. That should be our hearts. We should long for the rule of the king. In fact, look at what 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, God is the actor in salvation. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies of a coming shoot, a child born of a virgin to save his people from their sins. Israel, having forsaken God, was under judgment, yet God has preserved a remnant. He would not utterly destroy the line of David in fulfillment of his prophet, of his, of his, of his promise to David in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. This shoot would be a greater David. Notice what it says. Thou shalt come forth a shoot from the stump of whom? Jesse. Who is Jesse? 
Jesse is David's father. This would be a greater David. David was the greatest king Israel knew. But this shoot from the stump of Jesse would be a greater David. He would be a perfect David. One without sin. Yet at this point, at the time of the promise, God's kingdom looked dead. It looked abandoned. But God. Hear me on this. Often, God does his greatest work in our lives when things look hopeless, when it looks like we have nowhere to turn, when there's ruin, where there's weakness, where there's hopelessness. And if you feel you're at that place today, you've got a lot to look forward to. Because our God brings a shoot out of his stump. He brings life where there's been death. So first of all, we see God brings hope to the hopeless out of a stump, a shoot. But secondly, we see that he brings wisdom and justice to the needy. He brings wisdom and justice to the needy. Now, how will we know that it is God's Messiah? When this shoot comes, how will we know? Well, Isaiah in his prophecy, he tells us in verse 2, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There will be something about this Messiah. There will be something about this, this root that comes up from, from, the, from the stump of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. If we fast forward 700 years and to the baptism of Jesus, we see in Matthew chapter 3, this actually takes place. Let me put it on the screen. It says, when, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Not a dove descending, but the Holy Spirit, like a dove, was descending and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You actually see the Trinity here. You see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus at his baptism. And you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, we see that in verse 2. And it says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's a picture of the Trinity right there. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord, of God, it's in capitalized, it's all capitalized, it's Yahweh, will descend, will rest upon him. Isaiah giving hope to those that were in, despera in, 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 uh, dis in desperation at that point. The Holy Spirit would come and empower this Messiah. He would have a source of power without end. He would be unlike other failed and flawed leaders. This leader is uniquely qualified. Why? Because the, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Will rest upon him in power. He is divinely endowed, and because of that, all the fullness of God rests upon him. Look what Colossians chapter 1 says in verse 19 and 20. It says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This coming Messiah 
would have the Holy Spirit rest upon him. The fullness of God would be in him. He is fully man. He is fully God. And he would be able to reconcile all things to himself. He came as the great reconciler. Our separation from God as a result of our sin. Jesus came to reconcile us, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. How did he do that? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus died in our place on the cross so that we could be reconciled to him. What is our responsibility in that? To embrace that truth. There's nothing we can do to be saved apart from turn from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus sees the, the, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He, he, he actually declares that, and I don't know if you remember, but in Luke chapter 4, when he goes into Nazareth, and it says that he is given the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens up Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 61. And, and this is what he said. He quotes Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has just declared that he is God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he drops down in verse 21, it says, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When you see Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus quotes that. He quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and, and this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That must have been an awesome moment for the people sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth. But for others... The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they saw it as blasphemy because Jesus was calling himself God. Jesus' equipping would be by the Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit who empowered his attributes and his abilities and characters. And what you see in verse 2, you see three different couplets that speak of his character, speak of his, his, his abilities, to speak of his, his attributes. Notice what these couplets say. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Through a full wisdom and full understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear. Now I know what's interesting is you can't counsel unless you have wisdom and understanding. And, and we're reminded that in chapter 6, actually chapter 9 verse 6, that one of the names of Jesus was Wonderful Counselor. And the reason Jesus is and can be the Wonderful Counselor is because he has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You can't counsel unless you have God's word. Now, you can give people your opinions. Well, let me tell you what I think. I don't know. I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what God says. We should be a people that say, I don't want people's opinions. I want to know what God's truth says. Because it is truth. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And so all of a sudden, he, he is the one with the counseling. He is the one with the might to, to, to bring that about. And then the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when you look at the fear of the Lord, you're thinking, what? 
What does that mean? I don't know. That's I looked at that and I'm thinking, okay, I don't get that. Why the fear of the Lord? In fact, look at verse 3. And his delight, this is the shoot of Jesse, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. There's something that he delights. I just love to fear the Lord. What does that mean? It's not a cowering fear. This is to respond to God in awe and trust and obedience. His delight, his joy is to stand in fear and awe of God. Let me ask you something. Does that describe you? Do you have this awe of God? In fact, uh, Pam's just finished reading it. It's a book I read a number of years ago uh, by Paul Tripp called Awe. I would highly recommend it. It's all about the awe of God and being in awe of God. See, there was a fear of displeasing the Father, of not doing his will. That's why when he prays, uh, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and then what? Thy will be done. You see, when Jesus is in the garden, he says, Not my will be done, but your will be done. See, that is living in fear of the Lord. That is, that is delighting in the fear of the Lord. He's not motivated by anything other than pleasing God. In fact, notice what it says. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, verse 3. He shall not judge by what, he's, what his eyes see and decide disputes what is, uh, by what his ears hear. See, he's only motivated by the truth. He's not focused on what other people think. The approval of men by appearances. But Jesus lived for an audience of one, the Father. I can't tell you how our lives would be so different if we just lived for an audience of one. Think about the pressure that would take off of ourselves. We stop worrying about what everybody thinks about us. And the fact is, nobody's really thinking about you. Because they're all thinking about what everybody else is thinking about them, so they don't have time to think about what you're thinking about them because they're thinking about what you think about them. Does that make sense? But the fact is, when you live for an audience of one, that's all you care about is pleasing him. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he hears or sees, but by truth. Verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Not by what he sees or what he hears, but by truth. In fact, that's why justice is blindfolded. Just look up justice, and you'll see a woman holding scales in the balance, blindfolded, not concerned by what they see, but by what's true, by how the scales balance out. So Jesus takes this prophecy 
about what kind of person he will be. In fact, in, in John chapter 7, he even tells us how we should then live. Notice what it says in John chapter 7, verse 24. He says, do not judge by appearances. It's a great word right there. You could do a whole message on that. But judge with right judgment. Judge based on walking in the spirit, not walking in your flesh. Judge based on what the word of God says and not what the culture says or general opinions say. Listen, we can trust Jesus' wisdom and his justice because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord. So this, this shoot, this shoot of Jesse, he brings hope to the hopeless. He brings wisdom and justice to the needy. But third, he brings peace to adversaries. Now, when you read verses 6 through 9, you're going to step back and you're thinking, what is this referring to? Let's go there. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, what do you think that wolf instinctively wants to do to that lamb? Yeah, dinner. Little Cholula, it'll be fine. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Uh, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And this seems supernatural. Something is different here. And the weaned child shall put his hand over the, on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is this referring to? I'm going to ask you, because when you look at verse 9, there's a cross-reference. And that cross-reference is Isaiah 65, verse 17. Excuse me, verse 25. Isaiah 65. So just turn to your right to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. And in verse 25, you almost see a comp an exact uh, repeating of the words of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So you've got to read that in context. So if you look at back at verse 17... Of chapter 65. Notice what it says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to my mind. And we see that in Revelation chapter 21. One. And it, it's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. I create the new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah here is giving a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, which takes place after the second advent, after the second coming of Christ. So the question is, is Isaiah chapter 11 about the first advent, or is it about the second advent? And the answer is, yes. It is about both. In fact, I was struggling to get my head around this, and then I read something that John Piper wrote. John Piper says, it's kind of like 
seeing a mountain range way off in the distance. And the closer you get, you realize that's not one mountain range, but it's actually two. And then you get a little bit closer and you think, oh, maybe there's three mountain ranges there. So from far off, you get this different perspective. But, but this is actually, this prophecy is about both the first advent and the second advent. Isaiah is pointing to the fact that the root of Jesse, the promised Messiah, will make things radically new. Both in the first advent, when he comes and dies for our sins, but in the second advent, when he comes and rules and reigns. And he brings a completely different peace on earth. See, Jesus brings peace. Peace. He brings. My dentures are kind of falling out. He, he brings. He brings peace on earth through his death on the cross. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But in the second advent, there'll be absolute peace between adversaries. Peace comes to those who have a saving knowledge of the Lord. Notice what it says going back to Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's something here at the end of verse 9. Gives us peace, that provides the peace, the pathway to peace. It says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How do we have knowledge of the Lord? Through His Word. God gave us His Son, He gave us His Word. And peace comes as a result of understanding and not having a knowledge of the Lord. Not just intellectual knowledge, not book knowledge, but a personal knowledge, an intimate knowledge, from spending time with them, having a personal relationship with them. So this right here begs a question. If, if he brings peace to adversaries, why do Christians have battles with each other? In fact, more specifically, why do so many Christian couples struggle? Stepping on some toes? Here's the reason. They don't apply what they know. See, if we would apply what we know, it changes everything. If both, if both spouses would get out of their sinful ways, if they would commit to live in obedience to the word of God, count others more important than themselves, to seek forgiveness, to love unconditionally, to, to trust without precondition, then you would see peace and tranquility. When Pam and I first started doing marriage retreats, actually before that we, had, we were teaching a course called Practical Steps for a Biblical Marriage. And, and we were so young in the faith, and all we did was take God's word and started teaching it. And we said, listen, we don't have any background in marriage counseling. We, we, we don't have any background in counseling. But what we have is God's word, and, and God's word is enough. If you just take what God's word says and apply that to your life, you can have a great marriage. And we were shocked by the number of Christians that didn't. And there was one reason. They weren't taking what they knew and applying it to their life. See, Jesus 
the, the root of Jesse, he brings peace to adversaries, like the wolf and the lamb, like the leopard and the goats. And I'm not calling anybody here a goat. Don't call your spouse a goat. But it is the shoot of the stump of Jesse that brings peace to the, his, to the adversaries, both in the first and in the second advent. So finally we see, not only does the shoot of Jesse bring hope to the hopeless, he brings wisdom and justice to the needy, he brings peace to adversaries, but fourth, he brings a signal for all peoples. Sounds like bad English, doesn't it? He brings a signal for all peoples. Now, when you look at verse 10 and 11, both, sent, both verses start with the words, in that day. There's something that ties them together. It refers to the day of the Messiah's kingdom, of the drawing together of the nations, of the drawing together of Israel. There will be something about the root of Jesse. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There is something about this root of Jesse. He shall stand as a signal, or as a banner, or as a flag for the peoples. And when he talks about the peoples, what's he talking about? For all the nations. See, this Messiah would not just be for Israel, but it would be for all the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue. This refers to the Gentiles, to the nations who are not of Israel. In fact, Paul quotes this verse here in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, when he's talking about the ministry that he's been called to. Notice what he says. He says, and again, Isaiah says, Paul's talking about this, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul understood that his ministry was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. So the Messiah, he stands as a signal. He's putting a banner in the ground, a flag, a standard. I love the flags that we have out in front of our building, hope. We have a lot of people that need hope. There's a lot of people out there that need hope. It's a banner. It's a flag. It's a signal. And Jesus' signal, his banner is ultimately the cross. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This shoot of Jesse will be lifted up on the cross. He doesn't win the nations with a certain swagger or a certain cool or with intimidation. But the, but the, but the signal be, will be his own dying love on the cross. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So not only will this root of Jesse be a signal to the nations, to the peoples, but it will also be a signal to Israel. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, 
and from the coastlands of the sea, verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and, and, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the, worth, uh, of, of the earth. You see how he gathers the scattered. And that's what this Messiah does. He does it. He did it at the first exodus. The, you know, notice what it says here. It says, I will, I will uh, extend his hand, or uh, the Lord will extend his hand a second time. The first time was when he brought them out of Egypt and took them in the promised land. A second time is when he takes them out of their dispersion, out of their, their, their life living separate from God, and he brings them into the promised land. And the promised land for us is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the promised land. And when Jesus, when, when uh, uh, first Moses and then Joshua led the nation into the promised land, that was a, it was a prefiguring, a picture of God taking us into the presence of his son. So we see that he gathers the scattered, but also he heals the divided. Look at verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not har uh, harass Ephraim. What's he saying? Judah in, and, and Judah in the south and Israel or Ephraim in the north, they are, they've been at odds with each other for 200 years, but no longer. Why? Because of the sheet of Jesse. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. He gathers the scattered. He heals the divided, but he also removes the barriers. You see that in 15 and 16. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. It's a picture of, of the nation being able to cross the Red Sea. And will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. We saw that when the nation crossed over the Jordan River. And strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria, this is interesting, for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Assyria, which used to be the big bully on the block, is now the highway for people to come to the Lord. It's an amazing thing. All right. When you look at verse 10, there's something that's different. Some of you might have already noticed it. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse. What does verse 1 say? The shoot of Jesse. What's the difference between the shoot and the root? The root's down under. The root is the source. The shoot is the result. So this root of Jesse... This Messiah is both the root and the shoot. He's the origin and the descendant. He is the source and the offspring. He is the father and the son. He is the beginning and the end. He is both preexistent and he is incarnate. That is our Jesus. When you see this here, the Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that this Messiah is both the root and the offspring. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said in John chapter 8. But he also was born of a woman. Isaiah is telling a hopeless, needy, adversarial nation that the Messiah is coming. He's coming in the first advent to save his people from his sin. And we know that he came 2,000 years ago as a child. That's why we celebrate Christmas. 
But also, he's coming again in the second advent to make all things new. Now, he's not telling us when, but he's telling us who. Jesus is coming again, and he's not waiting for the circumstances to be a certain way. He's waiting to hear from God. And then he will come. And the key is, we better be ready. Because once we hear the trumpet sound, there are no second chances. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. That's the second advent. That's the second coming of Christ. With the voice of an archangel and with the sounds of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those that have been in Christ will rise first. They're going to rise up into heaven. Then we who are alive, who are in Christ, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And and, and so we will always be with the Lord. For those in Christ, we will be with the Lord forever in heaven. Then he says this, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The shoot of Jesse came 2,000 years ago. The child, born of a virgin, given by God to save people from their sin. But he's coming again. In his second advent, as a conquering king to rule and reign. So during Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of Christ birth of a child, but we rejoice in the fact that he is the one that brings hope to the hopeless. He is the one that brings wisdom and justice to the needy. He brings peace to adversaries, and and, and that his birth is a signal for all people that the Messiah has come. But this is the point of having a signal, of having a flag. It would be a place we would go to. And so what we're hearing here is, is Isaiah saying, come. Come to the signal. Come to the flag. Come to the banner. Don't just sit in your seat waiting. He's saying come. And if you're not in Christ, this is an invitation to come, to come to him. He came in his first advent, but he's coming again. And the only way you can have peace with God is through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ who is a signal for all people. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. Twenty-two years ago, Pam and I were invited to a Christmas Eve service. First time we'd ever been to church, other than when I went to a Catholic church when I was younger, screwing up through, actually dated somebody who took me to Catholic church, didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know I was there. Yeah, I did. It was for the wrong motivation. The fact is, we went to church on Christmas Eve, and we heard for the first time the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that our sin has separated us from a holy God, and that Jesus came. God became a man. He lived a sinless life. He he died a sacrificial death. He was raised on the third day. that, That by believing, by turning from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ, we could have eternal life. And it was just a couple weeks later, January 11th, 1998, that Pam and I got down on our knees. We asked God to save us, to change us. And he did. Our lives have never been the same. Have we?
have we been without issues? No, we're fallen human beings. But the fact is, out of what our lives really were pretty dark, God brought light. And without Jesus Christ, there is no real light. And there is no life. So I'm going to encourage you, if there's never been a time where you've surrendered your life to Christ, turn from your sin, let that be the day. He's inviting you to come to him. Surrender to my Lord. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the root of Jesse and the, and the, and the shoot of Jesse, Jesus and it is because you sent him into this world, we can have eternal life. Father, I pray for people that are here today, maybe that have been living apart from you. I pray today they would just come and be completely surrendered to you. And if there's somebody here today that has never embraced you as Lord and Savior, today they would, they would turn from them, their sin and themselves and turn to you as their only hope for eternal life. Father, we thank you for Jesus who invites us to come.